Having come to the end of Paul's letter to the Galatians, we're going back to examine certain themes that sort of undergird and serve as foundation for Paul's writing and his thinking in this letter. And thus far, we've looked at truth, what is truth, and knowing, that is, how do we know, what is involved with knowing. And included in that have been discussions on reading, that is, how the church has read the Bible over the last 20 centuries, and story as a means of communication. Um, someone, I was going to leave him anonymous, but it was John, uh, commented that uh, it was sort of ironic that last Sunday uh, my presentation about story was so didactic. Um, one might even say theoretical. Here I am saying story is the way to communicate, but I'm not really telling any stories. And I would freely confess that my thinking is far too modern, that story as a means of communication doesn't always come naturally to me. Though I see it in scripture, and I believe that it is the basis of communication, it's how God communicates to us, I still struggle in this area. Without realizing it, I tend to think a story as something that is make-believe, um, that you know, something you tell kids, or that a story is something that is not true. I asked at the Bible study last Monday, we talked about this, and if somebody tells you a story, you wonder whether or not they're telling you the truth. Um, there was an expression when I was growing up in the Philippines that if they would say somebody was storytelling a lie, you know, that if somebody tells you a story, they're not telling you the truth. Or I tend to think that story is, it's, it's a good way to illustrate a point that you're trying to make some theoretical or abstract point you're trying to get across. It's sort of the poor man's substitute for deep thinking. You know, academics, they, we do the serious thinking and then, you know, everyone else, they have to tell stories. They have, they're sort of left with that. Or at best, perhaps story is just a setting to get across the point you want to make. Part of the problem, and we've seen this the last two weeks, is that our thinking is so fragmentary, um, and particularly in the areas of truth and knowing that we've looked at. Truth, even in the church, has been reduced to propositions rather than it being personal, rather than Jesus being the truth, and not, not just truth about getting to heaven, as we've seen, but all of truth is found in him. And reading the Bible has simply become an exercise for finding principles by which to live our lives, rather than seeing the Bible as the story, the grand story, that begins with the creation of all things and ends with the renewal of all things, and it hinges, it centers on the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Then last Sunday we looked at the matter of knowing. And in our time, this is very fragmented in that I am the knower and the thing that I know is the known. And so it's sort of the observer-object relationship. And I mentioned last week that I see myself as the observer and the chair, the chair is the object. And so I know about it, or at least if I'm a positivist in my thinking, that I can know that. Uh, if I'm a little bit more skeptical, I, I, I can say I, I think I, I know that that's a chair. But still there is this distinction, there is this disjointedness between me as the one who knows and the thing that is known. As a result, truth, reading, and knowing in our time are all very impersonal. Very impersonal. Which is really quite remarkable because this is not really true of the nature of reality. Reality was created by a personal God. And do we imagine that a personal God said, hmm, what shall I do? I know, I'll make an impersonal reality. 
that reflects who I am. If the world reflects who God is, then I think we should argue that there is a very personal aspect to it. And this is true even of truth, that sometimes we reduce to propositions, to theology. This is true, or should be true in our reading, and it should be true in our knowing. I mentioned last week at the end of the sermon that the first temptation, the first sin, revolved around the desire to have knowledge without relationship. Rather than waiting for God to teach Adam and Eve, here was a shortcut. Eat this fruit and you will have the knowledge of good and evil. So no more relationship. That's, that's very messy. It's, you know, it takes time. Knowledge without relationship and ultimately knowledge without love. And if you wonder how far we've drifted, um, do we even put knowledge and love in the same sentence? When we speak of, uh, Jack was saying last week after the sermon, epistemology, we, epistemology, love, I mean, it's like, okay, one is feelings and the other one is your brain. I mean, it's, that's how far we have drifted from what God intended. The result of Adam and Eve's sin is that all relationships have been shattered. Our relationship with the Creator, within ourselves, with one another, and with creation. Now, I want to be careful here, and I'm not backtracking, but I want to be clearer, I think, than I was last week. Relationships remain in a fallen world. They are broken, but they remain. And knowledge continued, but that knowledge was and remains faulty. As was pointed to me, pointed out to me at the end of the sermon last week, if you look at the first verse of Genesis chapter 4, this is the chapter right after Adam and Eve sinned and got kicked out of the garden, we read, And Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. The expression that Adam knew Eve, his wife, is not prudishness on the part of Scripture. If you suspect that it is, then I will tell you, you've not read the rest of the Bible, because there's some fairly graphic stuff in the Bible. So this is not prudishness. It's like, well, you know, they didn't want to say they had sexual intercourse. Okay, So they say he knew his wife. No, no, no. This is a profound statement about the nature of reality and about the personal and relational nature of knowing. Even in a world that has been marred by sin, Adam knew Eve, his wife. With all that in mind, I want to return to Galatians to look at one aspect and to tie it in with what we've been looking at the last few weeks, to tie it in with truth and knowing. Our text will be Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, which I think are familiar enough. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control, Against such things there is no law. The one aspect that I want to examine is goodness. I would submit to you that our view, and it's not simply because we're fallen, but because we're also modern and even postmodern, our view of things is so disjointed and so impersonal that when we talk about goodness, in many ways it is cut off from all previous discussions we've had about truth and knowing. So I want to look at goodness and then show how, in fact, it does connect 
should not be torn apart from truth and knowing. But first we have to ask and answer the question, what is good or what is goodness? When we study this passage, I mentioned that the word that Paul uses here for goodness is found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. It's found in the New Testament and it's found in literature that is commentaries about the New Testament and nowhere else. This is, strictly speaking, a biblical word, a word that is only used in Scripture. So to better understand it, I think we have to look at what Scripture says and how Scripture uses this word, because it doesn't give us a definition as such, but it does, in fact, illustrate what goodness is. To guide, to guide us, let me just suggest to you that goodness points to moral excellence, it points to ethical correctness, to usefulness and purposefulness. Moral excellence, ethical correctness, usefulness, and purposefulness. These, I think, are borne out when we look at what goodness, how goodness is used in the Bible. When we look at what the Bible has to say about goodness, I think we should consider two things. First of all, it is mentioned as an attribute of God. In Exodus chapter 33, we have the story of Moses saying to God, Show me your glory. I want to see you. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. The glory of God, what God allowed Moses to see, was all his goodness. His goodness is seen in, his glory is seen in his goodness. And then in Psalm 27, David tells us, I am confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And this points to God's acts in the midst of his creation. Even in the fallen world, God's goodness still shines through. He continues to do what is good. In Psalm 105, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. And all of these point to God's goodness being who he is and what he does. I could spend a lot more time on this, but I mentioned this at the as the beginning point, I think appropriately, if we are going to discuss goodness as it is used in Scripture. The second way, or the second thing that we should talk about, first the as an attribute of God, but secondly, as a characteristic of creation. If we follow the paradigm of creation, fall, redemption, I would submit to you that we see goodness in all three. The first one is easy enough. In creation, in Genesis chapter 1, we are told that God creates, and at the end of each segment of creation, he stops and sort of takes note, and he sees that it is good. Seven times we are told in Genesis 1 that he saw that it was good. And actually, the seventh time, it says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. We shouldn't be surprised if God's, one of his attributes is goodness, he is good, and he makes something, we would assume that it would also be good. And if it is a reflection of who he is and his character, <coughs> excuse me, then yes, it would in fact be good. Excuse me. When it comes to the creation of man, 
We read in Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I hope that you would agree (coughs) that a good God who sees his creation as good and man as a part of that creation would also tell us that man is good. And if a good God made man in his image, then man would be good as well. But then we come to Genesis chapter 3 and everything changes. Here we come to the portion we know as the fall. And I would submit that what we find is a creation that is marred but not abandoned. It is not abandoned by God, and it is not without value. Creation is, in fact, something to be redeemed. And as one author put it, God's goodness must be understood in terms of the goodness of his work. Now, not simply in the week of creation. Paul wrote to Timothy, For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And I would argue that this is true not only of God's creation in general, but of humanity as well. After the flood, God gave Noah uh, certain instructions, and he was told, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. That is to say, this is after Adam and Eve sinned, after God destroyed the planet with a flood, God still says that man is made in his image. The image is there. It is marred, no doubt. It is broken, without question. But the image of God is still there. And on some level, the goodness is still there. Hold on, we'll come back to this in in a bit. In Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus was confronted about the religious or by the religious leaders in the week before his death, uh, they tried to trap him. Let me read you the passage. This is Matthew 22, beginning in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. You might say, well, it's a wonderful story, but how does this fit in with the matter of goodness? Jesus told them, give to Caesar that which bears his image. The coin bears Caesar's image. Give it to Caesar. It is his. Implied in the second statement is, Give to God what bears his image. That is, we are to give ourselves to the creator. We bear the image of God. But then the question might come up, if you know your Bible at all, Romans chapter 7, verse 18. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. How can I stand up in front of you and say that, in fact, in humanity we find goodness as we are made in the image of God, and yet Paul says that there is nothing good in us? Uh, 
Well, it's a whole different subject, but I, let me just say that Paul is not making an absolute statement, some proposition, some principle. He's, in fact, telling his story. If you read Romans chapter 7, he talks about the, the time when he became aware of the fact that he was a sinner. And he became aware of the fact that he could not do anything that would please God, that would win his salvation. If you get a chance, go back and look at Romans 7. But I would also remind you that when we speak of goodness, we're not simply speaking of moral excellence, but we're also speaking of usefulness, of purposefulness. That is that God has for each of us something he wants us to do. And in that sense, there is the goodness of God within us, that we are made in his image. I think we would all agree that when it comes to moral excellence and ethical correctness, we are not good. See Romans 7, verse 18. We would agree with Paul there. But we still bear the image of the Creator, and therefore there is something of value in us. Creation, fall, then we come to redemption. And the truth of redemption is revealed in the Gospel. The good news. And the center of the Gospel is Jesus Christ. The end, or the goal of the Gospel, is the renewal of all things. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8. He says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. For the creation itself will be liberated from bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is a fascinating passage for a number of reasons, but one is, when we speak of goodness, we shouldn't sort of say, this is spiritual in, in quotation marks, that it couldn't possibly refer to the physical re- reality. Except Paul says the redemption of our bodies. Okay, that's pretty physical. And he says that creation itself has been waiting. Because yes, in creation it was perfect, but because of sin, because of the fall, it was subjected to frustration. Things don't work the way that they should. And it is waiting. It is groaning. It is waiting until Jesus comes back and all things will be renewed. The process began with the resurrection of Jesus, and it continues now through us, his people. But um, redemption is not only for us, getting to go to heaven, so to speak, but in fact for all of creation. You might remember from Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. That is the goal of redemption. When it comes to God's people, God's family, here we return to what Paul wrote in in Galatians chapter 2, his discussion of death, union, and love. If you will, look at chapter 2 of Galatians, verses 19 and 20. For through the law I died to the law that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And as we saw when we went through this, there are three parts to this. First of all, he speaks of death. 
I died to the law. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Not identical statements, but all pointing in the same direction that who I was before I came to faith in Christ, that identity is gone. Paul says, you know, before I became a Christian, I identified myself as a Jew who kept the law. That identity is gone. And if you remember in chapter 2, Paul is speaking to Peter. He's not writing some type of timeless truth for all people of all time. It is certainly true, but he's speaking very specifically to Peter. And if you wish Peter's story, Peter, you were born and raised a Jew. You must die to that because now, and this is the second part of it, you have been united with Christ. We have union with Christ. If you cling to that identity apart from Jesus, then, then you are not united with him. The union is seen in verse number 20. Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, again, the physical dimension there, I live by faith in the Son of God. Paul's not contradicting himself. He just said, I no longer live, but now he says, the life I live, I live by faith. Remember, the first part is death, that old identity. And now there is a new life in union with Christ. We are united with Christ. We are a new person, a new creation. And the third part we saw was love. Um, I think in reading verses 19 and 20, and I mentioned this when we went through it, we might think that Paul's finally left the stories behind and is finally getting to the good theological, you know, the red meat, so to speak, of the passage. But then he speaks of the fact, in verse number 21, that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. The death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, not merely transactional events in history. Let me see. You've got X amount of sins, so Jesus died to wash away your sins, and now you get to be a child of God. It is, in fact, something that happened because of the love of God, the love of Jesus, in which he gave himself freely. For Paul, love is the giving of oneself. So we've seen death, union, and love. And the union is carried out on an ongoing basis by the Spirit. Uh, I point out three things that Paul says about the Spirit here in Galatians. First of all, in chapter 4, verse 6, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. The Spirit lives within us. Then in chapter 5, verse 5, By faith we eagerly await through the Spirit, the righteousness for which we hope. This is the already, not yet. And the Spirit is there, helping us as we wait for the time when Jesus comes and all things will be renewed. The third is our text today, verses 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit, that which the Spirit brings about in our lives. And when we study the passage, I mentioned three groupings. First of all, the qualities or the graces that demonstrate our attitude, our relationship to God. Love, joy, and peace. The second group, the graces that demonstrate our attitude toward others. Patience, kindness, goodness. And the third group of three, the graces that demonstrate our attitude toward oneself. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Much could be said about goodness in terms of demonstrating our attitude toward other people. But what I want to point out, in keeping with what we've been looking at the last few Sundays, is that living when and where we do in the modern age, we in this time and those who came before us, and therefore they have influenced us, 
somehow we have disconnected goodness from other realities, particularly, for our purpose, from truth and knowledge. To remind you of what we saw when we looked at how the church has read the Bible, we saw that the early church understood its place as a continuation of God's plan, of God's plan with his people that he promised to Abraham. To use the illustration that I mentioned, that the church saw God's plan as beginning with Abraham, if you wish, in a sense, on land, and then Israel goes to sea, they get the law, and as they come ashore, that is the coming of Jesus, and now the journey continues, and we join in with this band of travelers, and we become the Israel of God. They saw the coming of Jesus as the fulfilling of the law. They saw in his life, death, and resurrection the turning point of human history. However, rather quickly, within two centuries, the church abandoned the idea of story and narrative and went more for the allegory. What is, what is the secret meaning behind it? What does it symbolize? The fact that we have all these stories, well, that's nice, but no, what's, what's the really important stuff that is behind it? And so for, for at least a thousand years, that's how the church read scripture. And I think uh, this was mentioned by someone, that the majority of people, our brothers and sisters during that time, could not read scripture. They didn't have copies of the Bible. They were only kept in churches. And as they would hear scripture read, it would then be explained to them in terms of allegory. Well, this is actually what it means. When the Reformation came along, and this is shortly after the Gutenberg Bible, then suddenly people do have access to the Bible, and the Bible as the authority for the church came to the forefront again. But even here, something happened, and this is the coming of the modern age, and it's almost as though the observer-object relationship emerged, in which I am the one who reads the Bible, and there's the Bible over there. And my knowing, my reading, and even my view of truth as a Christian became very, very disjointed. It is during this time that you have all the theological debates. And theology, in a, in a real sense, doctrine became very defensive about itself. And if you think about it, if you say, listen, truth is personal. Well, we can't argue about that. Because that's, that's how you view things. But if, in fact, you say truth is propositional, that it's a bunch of principles, well, then I can take my principles and sort of lob them over at you, and you can throw yours at me, and we can have this ongoing theological debate. But in the process, the personal aspect of truth is lost. The personal aspect of knowing is lost, but something even more tragic is lost. The goodness of truth is lost. Because what emerges during the centuries after that is something is seen to be true if it all fits together. If you can make a good argument, then we'll say, well, that's true. And suddenly, the goodness of it, as in the character of God, as in the goodness of his creation, as in the goodness of his son, that goes out the window. And goodness is seen as, yeah, if you... If you put these things together, I have a very coherent argument. And the goodness of truth is seen in its coherence rather than the fact that it is about God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Truth began to be spoken of in abstract forms 
rather than relational and personal. And the focus among theologians and even among pastors shifted to making things fit together, making a strong argument, destroying somebody else's argument, and asking, does it fit together? And then if it did fit together, saying, well, it must be true. And so we are the descendants of those who the past few centuries before us have detached truth from goodness. And even the ability to think about ethical and moral questions was removed from the context of the Christian life, of of being a person, of being made in the image of God. Um, Ken Myers, in an interview with uh, one of the authors, talked about the fact that now in seminaries, they actually have departments of practical theology. Which implies, and they would never say this, but it implies that other theology is not, in fact, practical. That it is not personal. It doesn't deal with real life. Here, this is the theology that deals with real life. And goodness and knowing and truth have been pulled apart. See, that's what sin does. When sin came into the world, it pulled things apart. The renewing of all things is the putting of things together. So that when we think of truth, we don't think of propositions, we think of Jesus Christ. And when we think of knowing, we don't think of, I'm the observer, that's the object. We think of a story, of a conversation going on. And when we think of goodness, it shouldn't simply be moral correctness, ethical excellence, if you wish. But it should, in fact, involve a relationship. And part of that relationship is purposefulness and usefulness. In the last 400 years, truth and goodness have been separated. Consider this. Goodness is used six times in the New Testament. The word goodness appears six times. Our text is one of those six, so we'll set that aside for a moment. But I want to read the other five passages and not discuss them but just mention certain things and just listen to them Romans 15:14 Paul is writing to the Roman Christians I myself am convinced my brothers that you yourselves are full of goodness complete in knowledge and competent to instruct one another Ephesians chapter 5 Live as children of light For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 6, which is a very difficult passage without question. Those who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. The fourth is 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And then two verses later in verse number five, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. Two of these verses are very Old Testamenty, if you wish, in their orientation, the goodness of God. You've tasted of the goodness of the word of God very much harkens back to what we hear in the Old Testament. But I don't know if you caught it, that with every mention of goodness in these five passages, we find one of the three mentioned, truth, knowing or knowledge, 
and the word of God. Every time goodness is mentioned, knowing or truth or the word of God is mentioned. There's no disconnect. Let's talk about truth over here and goodness over here. At this point, you might be saying, so what? Where is this all going? I think we, as God's people, must understand and recover the relational and the personal aspects in truth, in knowing, and in goodness. Rather than having a fragmented view, we must have a biblical and a holistic view. A view in which truth and knowing and goodness are interwoven. That we don't say, okay, I'm over here, and that's truth, and that's knowing, and that's goodness. That there, in fact, should be a conversation. I should be a part of that conversation, and these three things are interwoven. Actually, other things are, which we'll be looking at in the weeks to come. To know God and to love God is the purpose of living life. I think we need to rethink the matter of goodness. We should consider or reconsider how we view God's creation and how we view human beings. We are sinners. Never doubt that. But we are made in the image of God. I think we may have lost sight of that. In standing for the truth, we have lost sight of the goodness of God's creation. There are several other matters to consider, which, the Lord willing, we will look at in the weeks to come. What I hope, again, the Lord willing, we will look at next week is the connection between goodness and happiness. We've looked at truth and knowledge and goodness. I think the next step is happiness. Is there a connection? Can you be good and happy? Can you be obedient and happy? Or is happiness simply something that is being put off pie in the sky by and by when we get to heaven, then we get to be happy? And then, the Lord willing, after that, we will look at the connection between truth, knowing, goodness, happiness, and beauty. The goodness and the beauty of God's creation. But I think for a lot of us, we had to deal with that happiness thing first. Because... We see love as self-giving, as as self-sacrificing. So if I'm going to be good, if I'm going to do what I should, can I be happy? Can I enjoy myself? Or just write that off for this life and just hang on and then hopefully be happy when you get to heaven. The Lord willing, we will look at this next week, the weeks to come. Just in closing, I would say we need to... to realize where we are and how that the world that we look at is so fragmented and our view of it is fragmented. And Jesus has come to restore all things. The things that were torn apart by the sin of Adam and Eve, by God's grace, are to be brought back together. And as God's people, that is our calling. Let's pray together. Father, how good you are. We see your goodness all around us. We have experienced, we have tasted your goodness. We see it in the beauty of your creation. 
see it in those who are made in your image. Forgive us when we fail to see it, to fail to appreciate it. When we even fail to see it in your truth, in your word. We are the children of our ancestors. Their thinking has influenced us. By your spirit, may there be a recovering. May there be a renewing of our understanding. May we be transformed by renewing our minds. And rather than thinking like the world when it comes to truth and knowing and even goodness, may your spirit through your word teach us and change our thinking. Thank you for this day that we could gather to worship you, the first day of a new week. We thank you for your faithfulness in each life, and particularly on this day, we remember your goodness and your faithfulness. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand if you would please and let's sing the doxology together. Thank you.